you're listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Twice over the past five years, we've designated one of our Sunday evening liturgies as what is often called an instructed Eucharist building in some teaching around why we do what we do. Now, I almost hate to do it tonight because that's such a great parable to preach, but we did make the decision, so we will. This time around, it's going to be a little different in that for the first time, Rachel and I get to share this work. As I preach and she presides, and just prior to presiding, she's going to offer some additional comments kind of trying to unpack a little bit more around our worship practice. It's also different because rather than focusing on the whys and the whats of the liturgy and its symbols, tonight I actually want to focus on this liturgical space and how it shapes us. Now you might recall that when we were nearing the end of our three-month summer sojourn in Elam Chapel, I put out an invitation for people to send me their thoughts and reflections on that worship space and how it differed from All Saints. What was good? What was challenging? What was different? And what might we have learned about ourselves through the experience of having to be in another space? I thought I might do some writing, I had said, and in the end I received about 20 email responses to that invitation. Last week, I finally sat down to do that writing, and while that written piece still needs some serious polishing, it's definitely sown the seeds for what I want to say tonight. I should say, first of all, that many, many people in their responses uh, expressed their gratitude for Elam Chapel's hospitality, and I think I want to echo that. I would also say that a few people noted that they thought it had been really good that we'd been displaced in that way, reminded that a church is first and foremost a people, that at St. Benedict's table we were still able to gather, sing, pray, reflect, and break bread together. I think that's significant. Even at that, though, it was clear that everyone who responded was aware of the differences between the two worship spaces. Now, you might recall that while the original Elam Chapel building is actually older than All Saints, after a devastating fire in the mid-1970s, they basically built a very contemporary worship space within the shell of the old building. That rebuild was done according to some principles of church design that first began to emerge in the 1960s. And so rather than the long and narrow shape of this building, Elam Chapel's configuration is wide, relatively short from back to front. To do this, they they actually angled things a little bit within their building, And they worked with four seating areas built around three aisles, all set on a slightly sloping floor, carpeted throughout. 
The four section of pews were arranged in something of a, of a semicircle so that you were able to see people all around you. The pews were also upholstered, which was appreciated in its own way. Yet between that fabric, all of the carpeting, an enclosed mezzanine along one side of the sanctuary, and large beams that cut right across the ceiling from wall to wall, there was very little acoustic resonance to the space, certainly nothing like what we're accustomed to here. So to compensate for the, for the, the dampened down acoustics, They've outfitted their sanctuary with a very sophisticated sound system. Our sound techs had to learn how to run it from an iPad. It was a little daunting the first few weeks, and then they got really good at it. Now, the difference in sound was what was noted more than anything else in those comments I received. For while their sound system allowed for a very well-balanced sound from our music ensembles, It meant that congregational singing was not at all like it is here. As you sang, it could feel that your voice went out about two feet and then just kind of dropped to the floor. But it wasn't just in the music that people felt the difference in acoustics. One person rather teasingly noted that when we preached, Rachel and I sounded, quote, rather like evangelical pastors. Then, more charitably added, this is a comment about the sound, predominantly conveyed by electronics, soaked up by padded pews, missing the resounding natural effects of the All Saints acoustics. It was, however, something that Andrew Coleman wrote after he and Rachel had joined us on a Sunday while they were visiting from Toronto. Andrew wrote, One thing that was very noticeable to me was the cadence of your speech, Jamie. Because you did not have to wait for the reverb to finish in the way you do at All Saints, you sped up all of your speech to match the Elam Chapel space. You went so far as to swallow some words that you would normally have articulated clearly. Now, he was speaking specifically of presiding at communion, and I had no idea that I had sped up like that, articulating less clearly and carefully. That really got me thinking about the way a space can shape the the hows and the whats of worship and liturgy. So think about this space for a minute. It's built in neo-Gothic architectural tradition. The body of the church, or the nave of the church, as I said, is long and narrow, with a very prominent center aisle. Behind me is the chancel, where the choir is meant to be seated in a pattern drawn from the monastic tradition, the two sides facing one another in order to sing the psalms back and forth responsibly. Further back beyond the choir is the sanctuary proper, with a large high altar right up against the wall. The shape of the whole is meant to evoke movement, 
a journey from entering at the back through to the reception all the way up, the reception of communion at the very front. There's also meant to be a symbolic movement of the congregation's prayers that come from the congregation in the nave into the chancel and through and then ascend at the point of the high altar. Such church buildings are traditionally built facing east, as this one is. East symbolizes our orientation toward Jerusalem, the spiritual heart of the scriptures. And so in this space, everything sung is, in a sense, sung towards our center, our spiritual center. The ceiling of the nave is high and very open. It's essentially designed for the acoustics. It's also a symbolic character to the shape of this ceiling, The structure of those beams, if you look up, if you imagine sort of flipping it over upside down, you're meant to see the bottom of a sea-going ship. It's another image of movement. For us, and especially for our earliest forebears in this place, it is the acoustic resonance that stands out. Remember, when this church was built, there was no sound system. So the entire liturgy, music, readings, liturgical text, and sermon had to be projected naturally. It's why that pulpit is raised up off the ground and back against the wall. It's meant to aid the preacher's voice in coming out through the congregation. Well, in the 1970s, a few rows of pews were moved from the front to allow for a communion table to be placed at floor level. It's very happily also made room for our communion circles. They weren't thinking about that in the 1970s, but we appreciate it. More recently, of course, there were those rows removed from the back to make space for that reception area with tables and chairs. But otherwise, this space looks and sounds much like it did when the doors were opened in 1926. When we first moved here 15 years ago, we made some decisions about how we would use the space. We opted for a somewhat subdued level of lighting to cultivate a a more meditative approach. We decided that we would place the musicians seated and off to the side rather than standing front and center so that they could lead with us. We landed the lectern in the middle of the aisle so that the word could be visibly proclaimed from our midst. We started ringing the large church bell to call us into our seats and then used that sounding bowl at the back to call us into stillness. The stillness became very important, as did a kind of a slower pacing of things with some breathing spaces and pauses just allowed to be there. Now, were you to visit other Anglican or liturgical churches for worship, you might discover that everything is spoken more quickly and that there aren't those moments of stillness. There's a group of us going down to St. John's Abbey in Collegeville 
this week on retreat. And we will discover there that they are even more slow and more meditative, and we will come back and we will try to slow you all down even more. Because the space and the being is important. You might also notice that in contrast to many parish churches, the exchange of the peace here is is fairly brief. In other contexts, it can go on for quite a while, feeling more like a foretaste of the coffee hour than anything else. We actually made that decision to not extend it too long. We made that a very conscious decision. The exchange of the peace is meant to symbolize making peace with our neighbor before coming to the table and to stand as a foretaste of the deeper peace into which Christ is calling us. And so as a symbolic act isn't meant to go on and on and on to have to cover everybody. It's a symbol. When I was first ordained, the senior priest under whom I served taught me a few interesting things about the exchange of the peace. Now, he was not an unhuggy person. He liked hugs, but he wasn't keen on hugs at the exchange of the peace because he knew that it would be uncomfortable for some people. He'd also observed, though, that if you give somebody a hug, there isn't actually any real eye contact because you kind of go right past them. And so he'd taken up a practice of rather than just shaking hands, of taking both hands of that person with whom he was exchanging peace and looking into their eyes and saying, peace be with you, the peace of Christ be with you. Suppose now, 30 years later, when people are even more aware than they were then of our need to respect personal space and boundaries, his advice is doubly helpful and insightful. It's a symbol, remember? But back to the building. I think all of our decisions as to how we worship in this space were significant, and they have impacted us. But after those three months in Elam Chapel, I'm now persuaded that the shape of this building, the placement of its furniture, particularly its acoustic resonance, have all shaped us more than I'd begun to imagine. When we sing, we don't simply sing in this building, we sing with this building. As I learned from Andrew, the way that Rachel and I speak and pray the liturgy is also with the building, and that is good to know. Starting in 1926, there have been a lot of prayers offered here, a lot of sermons preached, scriptures read, psalms chanted, and hymns sung. Many new life beginnings have been celebrated here at baptisms and at weddings. Countless tears have been shed when the ending of lives have been marked in funerals. How many people have walked these creaky floors, making these carpets rather threadbare? How many people have sat in those hard pews and gazed up at these windows or at the woodwork or the organ pipes? We're part of that. And it's all part of us. Surely the church, the body of Christ, is the people, not merely the building. 
But buildings in which we gather can shape us, move and inspire us, comfort and quieten us, and in the end, they feel like a kind of home. Construction sites and blocked sidewalks notwithstanding, it is good to be home. So first, thanks to Jamie for helping us to begin to read this space and this building in in a new and a different way, and also for your words on the peace. Oftentimes when we get to the passing of the peace, I think with sadness of one of my good friends who grew up in the Anglican Church but hasn't been a part of the church for a while and has shared with me that every time she thinks about starting to come back, it's the peace that keeps her from coming because she's had negative experiences around folks not asking for consent before touching her and the thought of people who might hug her and like it's just too much. And so I always, I just always think of that with sadness. It's so fascinating to me how much thought goes into the design not only of a church building but of the worship space in particular. In a sense, these sorts of buildings can be read if you're taught how to read them, and you can tell a lot about what's going on and what the community values by reading the space. For example, this building tells us that we're a people shaped by stories. The stained glass that lines the sides of the church depict key stories from the life of Christ and the community he formed, and higher up are pictures of key historical figures within the life of the church. And each of these images is filled with coded imagery that can tell you all about that person's life if you know how to read it. There are also plaques filling up just about every single other bit of wall space, each with its own story to tell. Another way we can read what's happening is through color. Now, we actually use color quite sparingly, but with some basic knowledge of the church calendar, you can walk into this space and know what season it is based on the colors of the hangings on the pulpit and the lectern, and also based on the color of the stoles that Jamie and I are wearing. If you've been coming recently, you might just think that green is our favorite color because we've been decked out in green for a very long time. But we're about to shift into a time where you'll see us in red and blue and white, and each color symbolizes a different part of the church year. Green is for ordinary time, the longest season of the church year, blue for Advent, white for Christmas, purple for Lent, red for Pentecost. Red and white can also be used for a service honoring a martyr, it's red or a saint, white. And white is also used for special services like baptisms, marriages, and funerals. The fact that the church celebrates liturgical seasons is one of the most powerful and helpful gifts the tradition has to offer us. I find it helpful to literally move through the church seasons and to notice how the practice impacts my faith, to wait in Advent, to fast in Lent, to celebrate and feast for the full 12 days of Christmas. I have come to find embracing the concept of unique seasons with unique practices has had a serious impact on my life in general. It can be helpful when things are particularly difficult to remind myself that this is a season. It hasn't always been like this, and it will not always be like this. Or when something particularly lovely has happened to remind myself that good things should be celebrated and to take the time to do so. We're coming up on the anniversary of my ordination, for example, and I've spent some time thinking about just how I want to mark that occasion. Another thing you can read in this space 
are our clothes. On most Sundays, you'll find a handful of people wearing ties and suit jackets or really smashing wraps, and you'll also see people in jeans and t-shirts. What I hope this tells you is that this is a space where you can come exactly as you are, that you are free to be yourself here. You'll also normally see two people, Jamie and me, dressed in a black shirt with a white collar before and after the service, and then several layers of additional clothing when the service starts. I've had lots of conversations with people about this clothing over the past year, and one way that people tend to read this stuff is that it signifies that Jamie and I are the fanciest, most important people in the room. (laughs) But spoiler alert, we are not. And our clothes are actually supposed to tell you that we're not. They're supposed to tell you we have a particular role to play in this gathering and to help you easily identify us, not to signify that we're the most important people here. We are not the most important people in the room, but it's understandable why you might think that given the distinctive dress. Vestments are an example of a symbol whose meaning has shifted over time. Clothing used to be a very fixed symbol that clearly communicated who a person was and how they fit into society. Their gender, occupation, economic status were all indicated by their clothing. At many points in history, there have been laws dictating what a person could and could not wear. Unisex clothing wasn't really a thing. Dressing down wasn't really a thing. Men wore certain things, and women wore other things. Certain fabrics and colors were legislated that they could only be worn by people of particular economic classes, and different jobs had different uniforms. There are still pieces of this today in our modern-day society, but the lines are a lot fuzzier. One thing that remains the same, however, is that men can consistently expect when they buy pants they will have pockets, women not so much. (laughs) Jamie and I are wearing clothing that was modeled on the clothing of Roman servants, so the clothing that now can seem like the fanciest in the room was once the most basic in the room, signifying that a priest is the servant of the people. The black thing that I'm wearing is called a cassock, and it used to be everyday wear for a priest. Every day you'd get up and get dressed and put on your collared shirt, and before you'd step out the door, you'd button up your cassock, whether you were heading to church or just to do some shopping. And now there are some variations on how cassocks are designed, but if I was going to wear mine every single day, I'd have to allot enough time to do up all 39 buttons. One button for each of the 39 articles of religion, the document that at one time in our history outlined the basic tenets of what it meant to be an Anglican. So even though I don't wear my cassock every day, you will notice that While I may wear it before the service begins, there are these few extra layers I put on right before we start. The white thing that I'm wearing is called a surplus. It's not everyday wear. I only wear it when we have a service. White clothing has a long history of symbolizing baptism and Christ's goodness, and my surplus is a reminder of that. And then the last thing I put on before worship is this fancy scarf called a stole. The stole itself signifies that I'm an ordained person, and you may recall that last year I would wear it diagonally draped over my left shoulder, and that signified that I was a deacon. And although it may have made me seem extra fancy, it's actually meant to copy the clothing of a servant who would wear a sash like that and use the loose ends to dry your feet after washing them. Now I wear the stole around my neck, and it's meant to remind us of a yoke that a team of oxen wear. 
or in this case, the yoke of Christ, the yoke of service. It may look fancy, but it's supposed to be a symbol of humility. Now, there are lots of other garments that Anglicans wear, from choir robes to the bishop's super fancy hat. But generally, at St. Ben's, we like to keep things simple. But symbolism and historic meaning aside, personally, I love being able to wear vestments because of how I feel in them. When I put these clothes on, I'm reminded of the job I'm here to do. They actually help me focus and center, and I am much less distracted in these vestments. I've spent almost 20 years standing in front of congregations like this talking to groups of people, and for the first time, I can focus solely on my job and not on my clothes and what you might be thinking about my clothes. I'm not wondering if you think my skirt is too short or panicking that I wore the wrong shirt and I have to keep my hands at my sides because if I raise them too high, you're going to see a little skin. And you know what else? I have pockets. (laughs) Thanks be to God. Amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.